grace to all of you. It's a, a privilege to be here uh, for the second week in a row. Um, some of you may not know me, and likewise may not know you, but uh, my name is Marcus Denny. I was sent out from Cornerstone Bible Church in 2009 uh, as a missionary from the Czech Republic, where we've been laboring. So I'm here uh, these two Sundays by myself, my family, talking to my wife and children this morning in the Czech Republic, enjoying the snow, and uh, looking forward to being reunited with them. But it's been a real joy uh, just to be here all week and just to spend time with some of you personally and just to see what God's doing here at the church. It's a real, real joy and an honor. I'm so encouraged and thankful. Uh, Lord has certainly answered my prayers uh, for you as I pray for the church as a whole and even pray for, for many of you individually. Um, so my heart has been constantly focused on this church and, and though I'm away you know physically I could say the Apostle Paul that I'm with you here in spirit and uh, just to see how the Lord has answered my prayers for you and to see the health of the church it's a great joy um, you know I realize it's been a long week uh, Sunday is a day of rest um, it is a day to as Ben exhorted us in the morning to worship to praise God to fix our hearts upon Christ and to marvel at his mercies and the text this morning is a text I think I come to selfishly somewhat, just what I have before me the next six months of my, of my life, um, the temptations and the burdens that I will face personally. I think that I, I wanted to go to this text, and, but I trust it will be a, not just an exhortation, not just a reproof and correction to you, but I trust that it will also provide encouragement and hope. And so I just ask you this morning to open your Bibles. We'll be in Mark chapter 14. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, our text is specifically verses 26 through 31, but again for context, let's begin in verse 22. While they were eating, he took some bread and gave it, uh, after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to them. And said, Take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. Heavenly Father, it is impossible for a man to receive the word into his heart but by your spirit. Lord, even the godliest of men and women can have a hardened heart. The godliest of men and women can be distracted by the multitude of things swirling around in our minds, going on in our lives. 
And so we petition you, Lord, very specifically for this ordained moment that you would grant us grace to receive the word imparted, which is able to save and to sanctify the soul. We pray these things in the name of Christ for your glory. Amen. Before I was a pastor um, and a missionary, I was a, a framer. I built houses. I did that in Spokane, rain or shine. I did that as a young man for five years. I thought about last night. I didn't have any health insurance. Did lots of stupid things. Jumping from wall to wall, you know, walking, walking double walls, you know, covered in ice and snow, no insurance, and a lot of times no fear, no fear of the consequences. Did a lot of silly things. I certainly wasn't alone. And uh, I think just the nature of the work, you know, you want to, when you're young, you want to try to outdo the other guy, carry as much wood and much lumber as you can. But I remember particularly one thing that happened, not with our crew, but with another crew, and it changed the way I worked. There was a group of men, and they had built walls, and when you build big walls when you're framing, you, you build them on the ground, and you sheet them you know, with the plywood, and then you stand them up. Well, this crew built this wall and sheeted it, and they began to stand up this double wall. We're talking about a wall that's probably 16, 17, 18 feet tall. Very big, very, very heavy. And these men thought they could do it by themselves. <clears throat> and they began pulling this wall up, kind of like you're doing a weightlifting. They pulled this wall up, and they started to push it. Five or six or seven of these men, I don't remember. And halfway, they realized they, they couldn't do it. They, they couldn't, they couldn't, their, their strength gave out. Well, they were in a conundrum because there's, there's nowhere to go. You have this wall over half a ton weighing down upon you, and there was nowhere for them to go. And so in a panic, some of the men jumped out, and the wall collapsed. And one of the men, his femurs were broken, his legs were shattered. And one of the men, other men, was literally bent over backwards. And his back was broken. He was paralyzed. It's amazing that he actually lived. But his life was changed forever. And brothers and sisters, the, the reality is that these men, they thought that they could handle the weight. They thought that personally, in their own strength, they were able to bear the weight of this wall. And it's such a fitting picture of how men and women live in the world. And even at times how Christians live. That we think that we can handle the weight of this world. That we think that we can handle and live the Christian life in our own strength, and our own flesh. And the, the one word for this is self-confidence. Self-confidence. The belief, the idea that I can handle it. That I can do it. That within me, residing in me, is the, the ability, the power and the strength to live life for myself and by myself. That is what our text is about this morning. We have the story of a man who lived in the confidence of his flesh. Self-confidence is a, is a defining sin of man. It is ingrained in man from his youth to believe and achieve, reach deep, the only hindrance to obtaining your goals is you. Just do it. When you want something, 
all the universe conspires in helping you to achieve it. Paul Kohath. How about this? Follow your dreams. If you have a goal and you want to achieve it, then work hard and do everything you can do to get there. And one day, it will come true. Lindsey Vaughn. Now, we understand that that's the way of the world. We understand this is how the world thinks. But when this kind of thinking invades the church, it's disastrous. When this kind of thinking invades the realm of Christian living, it is not only dangerous, it is downright destructive. Brothers and sisters, if you scour the scriptures and you look at man and his confidence in his flesh, you will come to see quickly that God's view of it is that it is the heart of Babylon. It is the heart of Antichrist. It is the reason that so many churches have had their own lampstands removed. And it is the reason that so many Christians bear so little fruit and resemble so little in the likeness of Christ. The title of this morning's message is The Destructive Sin of Self-Confidence. The Destructive Sin of Self-Confidence. And our text is going to show us exactly that. How destructive, spiritually and practically, this sin of self-confidence is. But this text is also going to point us to the singular source of hope to show us how we can grow, how, how we can live for Christ, and how we can know eternal joy. Well, that's our aim this morning. And just for, for context, we need to begin in verse 26. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So as we read, they had just finished dining together. They had just finished what we know to be the Lord's Supper, the final supper, the last supper. In verse 26, the last part says that after singing a hymn, they'd gone out to uh, the Mount of Olives, a well-known mountain not far from Jerusalem. Helpful to know that it's the Passover in Jerusalem. There are millions of people packed in this city, millions of pilgrims that have traveled from all corners of Israel to be there to celebrate and to worship. And so the Mount of Olives is essentially barren. No one's there. Christ desires a quiet place to pray. He has gone there specifically to prepare his own soul for what he is about to face. Because in a few hours, everything is going to change. In but a few hours, he will be arrested and he will be utterly abandoned by his closest confidence. Now these first two events, betrayal and arrest, they were already known by the disciples. Just a few hours earlier during their dinner, he had revealed to the twelve that one of them, one of the very twelve, was going to betray him. And furthermore, three times, Jesus, in his ministry, had prophesied to his disciples that he himself, he was going to be arrested. He was going to be handed over to, to the Pharisees, the scribes. He was going to be persecuted. He was going to be, he was going to be beaten and then handed over to the Roman authorities that he himself was going to be nailed upon a cross of wood. He had said these things to the disciples. They knew these things. They had the facts. They had the information in their minds. But here in this dark hour, Christ reveals to them a message more personal and more grievous than they'd ever heard. Verse 27, he, he said to them, you will all fall away. Second person plural. You, as in you men standing right here in front of me. Not the crowds, not the fickle crowds that I fed. 
and not the 70 other men that I had sent out with you who were casting out demons and preaching the gospel. But now you, you 11, are going to fall away. The verb fall away, scandalizo, like a word scandal. The noun form of this word originally meant a trap. Later on, came to mean something that would trip someone up or cause someone to fall down. Now, important is that it's in the passive. Means that it's not something that they themselves do, but rather it's something that will be done to them. My sophomore year of college, late at night, my roommate and I horsing around, and we were just jetting through the campus park as fast as we could, just sprinting to the other side of campus, running. And all of a sudden, with no warning, we were literally slammed to the ground. My roommate just let out this shriek when he, he hit something, just shrieked and fell to the ground. And we were dazed. We got up and we looked up. There was a rope right at chest level. And somebody during, during the campus fair had tied a rope between two trees and left it there. And we hit that thing and just, we were just wiped out. And that's what Christ is saying. He's saying, man, you're going to be wiped out. Something is going to trip you up. You are going to stumble. You are going to fall. Now, what is important is that because it's in the passive, because it's not what they've planned, they're not like Judas. These men are not planning. They are not desirous. They are not scheming to deny Jesus Christ. These men love Jesus. They do not want to fall away. They do not want to deny him. And so therefore, we must ask, why will they? The text ultimately gives us two reasons. The first reason is right before us. He says, you will all fall away from me for, because it is written. It is written. Now, he's referring here to the Old Testament. He recites Zechariah 13, verse 7. 500 years earlier, Yahweh had foretold what would happen to the Christ the night of his death. Zechariah 13, 7. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Now, this is a violent prophecy. A prophecy that God will be against a certain shepherd in which Christ interprets to be none other than himself. And the result of that is that the little ones, likewise, it says, I will turn my hand against the little ones. <laughs> they themselves will be, will be scattered. And he looks at his disciples and he says, this text is speaking about you. You're the little ones. You're the ones that are going to be running away, bleeding, crying out. You are the ones who will stumble and be scattered. Now we need to put this in perspective. Because he's saying this to his best friends. He's, just, he's saying this to the men who are closest to him. He spent three years traveling all over Judea and Israel with these men. Preaching with them. Healing with them. Eating with them. Sleeping under the stars with them. Reproving them. Rebuking them. Loving them. Serving them. These men, they love Jesus. And yet he says that they're going to abandon him. And that they are going to abandon him in the greatest hour of his need. 
It is inescapable. That this night, 500-year-old prophecy will come to pass. But he gives them a good measure of hope. He says in verse 28, But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. He gives them a promise. Just as the promise of their stumbling will be fulfilled, he himself will be raised and they themselves will be gathered again to him. He will see them again. They will be reunited. And it's not, a, it's not a, some bad omen. It's not saying, I'm going to come find you. I'm going to hunt you down. No. I will go ahead of you. You will come to me. We will be together again. It does not all end in disaster or tragedy. And he gives them hope. This leads us just to the reflective question. To ask ourselves hypothetically, how would we have responded? We're in shock. We're amazed how the disciples could respond this way. But how would we have responded? How would you have responded? If Christ looked in your eyes and told you, this night, this night you're going you're gonna to deny me. You're going to abandon me. Would you have given a preemptive apology? Maybe you would have asked, but Jesus, why? What, what would cause me to do this to you? Maybe you would have asked him for help. Lord, is there, is there any way this can be avoided? Is there something that you could possibly do for me to sustain me and to help me from denying you? Or maybe knowing that you were going to stumble and that you were going to be restored, you would just thank him. Thank you ahead of time, Lord Jesus, for your patience and for your mercy. It's easy to think that we would have responded better, but the truth is we would have responded probably just like Peter. Verse 29. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't plead with Jesus to save him from falling. He expresses no weakness. There's no preemptive remorse. On the contrary, he reveals a heart of pride, a heart of self-centeredness, and a heart of tragic self-confidence. Even though all these ten here may fall away, I will not. Now, I want you to look at what Peter's words reveal. There's a lot of things that his words reveal, but I want to point out three main things. Firstly, it reveals that Peter, he's got big self-confidence. There is no self-doubt. There is no hint of self-doubt in those words. Nothing, nothing that can happen this evening, nothing that can happen in this world can make me fall. Not only does Peter reveal self-confidence, confidence in self, but he, he reveals no confidence in anybody else. He already knows how the others will respond. He believes that the others will fall. It's, it's no problem for him to envision the other ten falling away. It's no problem envisioning the others turning tail and running. Andrew, he's a, he's a weenie. James, he's a chicken. John, you know what? He's got big muscles. He's like the guy at LA Fitness, huge muscles. But you get that guy in a fight, nothing. But me, I'm battle-tested. 
MMA. I will not tap out. But the worst is thirdly, that Peter knows better than Jesus. He knows better than God. He tells Jesus that he is going to be the first person in the universe who will successfully subvert God's predetermined plan revealed in the scriptures. He essentially says, the word of God will not come to pass. But Jesus tells Peter, it's not God's word that's going to fail. In verse 30, he said to him, truly I say to you, truly I say to you. Now, it's bad enough when Jesus says, let me tell you something. But when Jesus adds a truly onto it, a man who's never lied and never erred, it's all over. Amen. It means, in fact, in all truth. But that's not the bad part. You just know what Christ says. He doesn't repeat his prophecy. He doesn't repeat Zechariah 13:7. He says something far more horrifying. He looks into the eyes of Peter and says to his best friend, this very night before a rooster crows, you, second person singular, will deny me three times. Not once, not twice, three times. Three times he's going to have opportunities to show that he knows Christ, that he is a follower of Christ. Peter is going to have one, two, three opportunities to show that he is stronger than all the other disciples. Once, twice, thrice, three opportunities to show that Christ has erred and that the word of God is not inerrant. But every single time, Peter will fail. The word of God will come to pass. And Christ will show himself once again to be the inerrant prophet and son of God. Three times he will say, I don't know. I'm not with him. I never met the man. Now I ask you again. How would you respond? Would you, would you be ready to beg for grace again to offer preemptive confession? To cry and now to weep and to plead? Maybe find a, a ball and chain and chain yourself to the nearest tree. Where you cannot get away. You cannot do anything. Is Peter now convinced of his weakness and his unfaithfulness? Is he now ready to see the vanity and the foolishness of his own self-confidence? On the contrary, verse 31, but Peter kept saying, insisting, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing. I want you to notice this. He's sitting there 
promising Christ he will not deny him. But he's already denying him. He's already saying, you're wrong. You're wrong, Christ. You don't know me. You don't know how strong I am. You don't know my affections for you are so deep that I will lay down my life for you. He denies that Christ knows the future. He denies that the one who has accomplished thousands of miracles knows what's going to happen this night. He denies that the one who has never erred, never been mistaken, (laughs) is now erring. And he means this seriously, so serious, he's willing to lay down his life. But instead of laying down his life for Jesus, instead of becoming the hero amongst the the eleven, of proving Christ wrong, Peter denied Christ three times. Yes, it was foreordained. Yes, it was predetermined. Yes, this text shows us the absolute sovereignty of God. But it also shows us the responsibility of man. And it shows us the destructive sin of self-confidence. I want you to grasp the full meaning of these words. Self-confidence. Self. Me. Myself. I. My personhood. My existence. My being. Confidence. Con. An intensifying prefix meaning with or thoroughly. Fidense, if you will. From the Latin fidere, to trust, resulting in the noun fide, faith. In other words, what does confidence mean? Faith, belief in myself. Trust, confidence, assurance in my power, in my might. Trust in my supposed wisdom. Trust in my own counsel. Brothers and sisters, self-confidence led Adam and Eve to think that they need not listen to God. It led Abraham to attempt to produce the promised offspring. It led Isaiah and Uzziah, sorry, to enter the temple. And self-confidence led Peter to deny Christ. Self-confidence is the absolute opposite of faith in God. Self-confidence is the religion of self. Self-confidence is the foundation of humanism and secularism. It is the mother of atheism and the spore from which bursts forth all religions that teach salvation by works. Self-confidence is the enemy of faith in God. It is the worship of man. It is the religion of Satan. And more practically, it is the religion of our time. It is the identifying religion of our time. We are are in a new reformation. Not established upon solo, sola fide. But a reformation established on sola confide. Faith and self alone. I can do all things to myself and my own strength. It is the reason so many churches are weak, dying. It is the reason so many believers are sick and unspiritually healthy. 
Maybe it's the reason some of you find yourselves this morning in that kind of state. You love Christ, identify as a believer, but you're not growing. Others see it. They see that your life is not bearing fruit, that you're not progressing, that you're not moving forward. After all these years, you're the same. Brothers and sisters, self-confidence, self-faith is destructive. It is a destructive sin in the church. It is a destructive sin in your life. It is a destructive sin in mine. And I will tell you that it is not eradicated in my own heart. This sin, when not dealt with, quenches faith, chokes out grace, and cuts us off from Christ. So I just want to spend the rest of our time looking at some things that self-confidence does and how, how it is manifest in the life of a Christian, what it does practically. So let's just look at a few things here. I confess again, I forgot to look at the time. I have a bad habit of doing that. But I'm sure we got three hours, all right? So let's go. Number one, self-confidence will keep you from God's word. Self-confidence will keep you from God's word. You have heard it said that this book, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And that is true. But I think more specifically we could say that self-confidence will keep you from this book. Self-confidence is the reason why we are often so little in the scriptures. If you already know everything, if you already are powerful, you don't need this book. You don't need wisdom. You don't need counsel. You don't need correction. You don't need reproof and rebuke. The more self-confident you are, brothers and sisters, the less you will be in the Word. You can examine yourself this very moment. You can make the connection. There is a real sense that the amount of time you are in the Scriptures reveals what you really believe about your own flesh and your own power. The scriptures are not for the wise. They are not for the strong. They are not for the capable. They are for people who have no power to change their lives. For those who know that unless they are constantly setting their minds in God's word, that they will be taken away by the world. The scriptures are for those who have no wisdom to live in this world. It is for people who know that they cannot live in marriage without God's wisdom. People who know that they cannot raise their children without God's wisdom, let alone to save them. It's for people who know that they cannot withstand the pressures of the world, the pressures of sin, the bombardment of temptation that plagues us every hour, every day. The scriptures are not for the wise. And they themselves say so. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Brothers and sisters, I just ask you humbly, are you in the scriptures? Are you in the word of God? And I don't mean like a seventh grader in a physics textbook. I mean like a deer that goes to water. Desperate for wisdom, desperate for counsel, 
desperate for strength, desperate for grace. Is your confidence in the word? How's your confidence in your flesh? Self-confidence will keep you from the word. Number two, self-confidence, no shocker here, will keep you from praying. Self-confidence will keep you from, from prayer. There are many, many reasons that we are often weak in prayer, but surely self-confidence is at the top of the list. Prayer in itself is a manifestation of weakness. Just the act of praying, regardless of what you're saying, you are saying, I am weak, God is strong. And I do not say this to be radical or for shock value, but if you can live the Christian life without prayer, either you're not a Christian or you're not going to last as one for very long. The Christian life, brothers and sisters, it is not hard. It is what? It is impossible. It is an impossible life, an impossible endeavor, an impossible calling. And the scriptures repeat over and over, there is nothing that you nor I can do apart from God. You cannot put one single sin to death apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot produce one God-honoring, Christ-centered thought from a sincere heart without the power of the Spirit. Apart from Christ, you could live 10 billion years and never produce even a little bud, let alone any abiding fruit. The Christian life, think about that, the Christian, Christ in, the, the Christian life, Christ in you, you in Christ. It is because Christ is in you that you will bear fruit. And if Christ is in you, that you will, they will then walk with him, you will love him, you will trust him, and you will pray to him. John 15 Verses 5 through 8, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do no thing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask, ask. If you are in me, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this. And you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The disciples needed to prove to be disciples. Your union with Christ results in prayer. I know it's hard to pray. I'm a, I'm a professional Christian. You know what I mean? I'm a missionary. Right? Pastor's sitting here. We're, like, we're the professional Christians. Prayer is hard. It doesn't come easy for anybody. But sin does. Sin comes easy for me. Temptation comes easy for me. Laziness. Anger. The fruit of the flesh. All these things come easy for Marcus Denny. And by God's grace, these things drive me and they will drive you to prayer. For you will be greatly strengthened in your souls. But do not, do not fall into the sin of trusting in yourself. Do not fall into the sin of thinking that you are strong. Do not fall into the sin of self-religion, of self-confidence. Self-confidence will keep you from prayer. It'll cut you off. Thirdly, self-confidence keeps you from God's power. 
2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Let me tell you what's going on. Our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired. The Apostle Paul despaired, even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. As Apostle Paul, the man every preacher aspires to be, who, who preached to thousands, who, who planted more churches than John MacArthur's written books, been all over Asia, wrote 23% of the New Testament, and here he is telling the church, I'm weak, I'm helpless, I experienced such powerlessness, I was crushed to death. Just by, the, just by the reality of oncoming death, I almost died. And after all that this man had done for God, what did God do for Paul? Afflicted him. Let him be burdened excessively beyond his strength, crushed by trials, crushed by life. Why? So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God, who has the power to raise the dead. God wanted Paul to know the power of Christ's resurrection. He wanted to bring Paul as we say, to an utter end of himself. So that every ounce of self-confidence and self-trust was expelled from him, was expelled from him. Have you been brought to an end of yourself? Have you seen the destruction that comes when you put your confidence in your own flesh? Maybe some of you have experienced that this morning. Maybe some of you even now are distressed, burdened, cast down overwhelmed to the point almost of despair that you see no way out you see no light at the end of the tunnel or like a man who has come up for one final breath before he's finally dragged back down to the water never to come up again this is the last place that you want to be but this is exactly the place that you need to be because here you will experience the power of God Brothers and sisters, you know, again, and I tell you nothing new, but God is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him. And he's using the difficulties, whether it's, whether it's cancer or kids, whether it's work or financial distress, whatever it is, God is using these things so that you would see you don't need to try to find hope and strength in yourself. You can be weak, because when you're weak in Christ, you're strong. Fourthly, self-confidence will keep you from church. This is the last one. Self-confidence will keep you from church. Now, I don't mean it's going to keep you from going to church. I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are here. It didn't keep you from this morning from coming to church. But what I mean by this is that it will keep you from experiencing, truly experiencing life in the body of Christ as Jesus intended it. Self-confidence leads us to want others to think that we have it all together, that we're doing great, that we're fine, that we don't need help, that we don't need fellowship, that we don't need the counsel of other godly men and women to try and convince us of why the decision that we are making is not wise I don't need to confess my sins to you. I don't need to confess my weaknesses to you. I don't need to let you in. You need to think that I'm strong. You need to think that I have it all together. You need to think that what? I need to think that you don't need God? Because that's what we say, brothers and sisters, when we act that way. When we, when we put up the facade. And we do it here in Orange County. And we do it in Cloudland, Czech Republic. 
I do it, I see it in the people, the body, men and women of our church, there's a facade. And I pray over and over and over, Lord, bring it down. Help me, Lord, to be humble too. Help me to model what it means to, to, to jettison my self-confidence and my trust in my flesh. And I'm not saying to walk up to every person at Cornerstone and tell them your, your deepest, darkest sins. That's not what I'm saying. But brothers and sisters, you've got to have somebody in your life. You've got to have, if you're a man, you've got to have a man that's a godly man that you can, you can entrust yourself to. That you can seek counsel from and prayer from. And you can say, brother, this is what I'm thinking. What do you think? And you know, you know that this man will come to you and he will open the word and he will say, this is what the word of God says. Don't do that. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for the men that I've had in my life. Sixty-year-old man in Spokane. Here I am, young man, pursuing missions, pursuing the, the call. And I'm getting distracted by this woman. Godly woman, that's okay. But this man was far wiser than I was. And he knew what was happening. And he came to me. Put his arm around me. Said, Marcus, God is calling you to this. You're getting distracted. Man, when a, when a 60-year-old godly man says that to you, you listen. By God's grace, I did. And I experienced that not once, not twice. I don't know how many times I experienced it, but, <laughs> and it hurts. But I look at my life. I look where I'm at. I'm looking at the opportunity to serve God this way, and I, I praise God for the body. I praise God for godly men. Brothers and sisters, we, 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 we're so impulsive. We're so confident. I don't need you to tell me about this decision. I don't need you to tell me what you think about my relationships. I don't need you to tell me what I should do with my money, what I should do with my time, how I should do with my family. Man, you're saying I don't need Christ because Christ ministers to you. How? Through the body. Every single one of you has been given gifts to minister and to build up the body of Christ. Not one single gift that you have is for you. It is for everybody else around you. But if you will not receive, as a believer, the gifts from others, you deny Christ. You push him away. You say, I can handle it. I don't need it. It's a lie. You do need it. And I need it. We all need it. Peter needed it. He needed to listen to the words of Christ. And he needed to let it sink in. And it did. It did sink in. He did fall. He did stumble. But he was raised up again. Because Christ is powerful. Because Christ restored him. Friends, some of you are happy to confess your weakness. You're willing to let it all hang out, out your dirty laundry. You're willing to be raw. You're willing to be real. But the truth is, you're not willing to trust Christ. You're like a man at the hospital who gladly tells the doctor all of his problems, all of his ailments. You you, you explain to him gladly all the things that are going on in your body, but you reject his counsel. You like to boast in your weakness, 
but you want to remain weak. You are filled with false humility. You are filled with self-deception, self-confidence, self-trust. You are not growing no matter how open and honest you are because confession is not enough. So what, what is enough? What must you do? What must I do? What must all of us do? We must look at the opposite of self-confidence. It is not lack of trust in self, though that is necessary. It is not no self-reliance, though this is also good. It is not enough to lose all confidence in yourself. It is not enough to merely believe how helpless and hopeless and sinful you are. It is not enough to merely stop trusting in your own power and strength. Many have given up. Many have lost hope. Many have jettisoned all power, all self-confidence, only to despair, only to be cast down, only to be drowned into the ocean of their own sins and their own destruction, their own temptations. It is not enough just to jettison your own self-confidence. You must put your faith in Christ. You must believe in him. You must behold his power and step into him and be embraced by him. Sola fide is not enough. You also need solus Christus. Faith alone in Christ alone. Faith in his power. Faith in his ability. Faith in his strong shoulders. That he is able to carry you and minister to you, and serve you, and raise you up. Brothers and sisters, do you believe this? Do you know how powerful he is? Do you know how able he is? Do you know how strong he is? On the cross, the weight of eternal damnation came upon him. The mountain of sin sat upon him. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He bore our sins. It does not say he sunk under our sins. He was drowned by our sins. He was crushed by our sins. It says he bore our sins in his body. He stood in his power and his might. bore it all in his body the cross how many have been crushed by the despair of their own sins drowned in their own transgressions to think of those who must stand on that day of judgment finally exposed to the reality of their own sin when the full weight of those sins will be placed upon that man or that woman and they will be sunk down into the mire of sin and death forever. No one to help them. No one to hear their cries. No one to rescue them. Like a man thrown overboard, shackled with ball and chain, dragged into the bottom of the sea, dragged into the fires of hell. But brothers and sisters, not those who look to Christ. Nothing can drag him down. Nothing can drag him down. My sin, my burdens, my weakness, your sins and your failures, 
they cannot drag him down. He bore the pile of transgressions that began to grow the moment that we entered into this world. Day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, lust by lust, sin by sin, the pile increased until it blotted out the sun and the moon and the stars and it rose into the nostrils of God. That weight of eternal sin was placed upon Christ and he bore it and he paid it all. He rose from the dead. He has raised us up together with him. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no reason to put one single ounce, one single worry into the confidence of our own flesh. Because Christ is our king. He is our God. He is our hero. And brothers and sisters, we need no more proof. The cross is the only the proof. It's all the proof we need. He need do nothing else. Nothing. Look to him. Trust in him. Put your confidence in him. You will be strengthened. You will live for his glory. You will bear fruit. And you will know the joy of Christ in your own heart. Dear Lord, forgive us of our foolish pride. Forgive us of this, this deep sin of self-confidence. Lord, trust in man is so vain. And yet there is not one of us who is not guilty of it. Pastors and elders and deacons and doctors and lawyers and teachers. Every single one of us, Lord, we think that we are strong, but we're so weak. Lord, help us to be weak so that we might be strong in Christ and through Christ. Raise us above the floodwaters, Lord, of our own sin. Raise us, Lord, out of the mire, Lord, even of our despair. Set us upon the shoulders of your strong son. For your glory and honor and for our good we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.